Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show, Science Dispatch Podcast, episode 63, I want to say. I hope that's right, Chuck. Of course, I'm talking to Dr. Chuck Dinderstein, Director of Medicine, the American Council on Science and Health. I don't know if it's that I'm about to turn 36 or if I just am bad at remembering numbers, but uh, I, I do get these out of order. So my apologies. Uh, how are you, Chuck? Good to see you again. I'm fine. I get things out of order all the time. But as long as I continue to remember my name and address, which happens to be Fruit of the Loom 38, <laughs> I'm fine. Wow, that was beautiful. I like that joke. I like that joke. Is uh, as you age, age gracefully, as Chuck has, with a beautiful sense of humor. Uh, okay, enough of this silliness. We have some science to discuss. Uh, we're talking about Dr. Dinnerstein's story from uh, earlier this month. It's called "Opioids, Cancer, Pain, and Maybe a Side Order of Corruption," which is uh, no small word for you, Chuck, because you're very gentle when it comes to uh, people's motives, which I think is appropriate in many cases. But um, Possible corruption. So I want you to explain that, but let me read the introduction to this story and then take it away as you always do. So you write, more than a third of patients with cancer report experiencing modern, uh, moderate to severe cancer-related pain. 40% of these patients experience breakthrough pain on their pain regimens. Opioid analgesics remain the mainstay for treatment of moderate to severe cancer-associated pain. There is a new meta-analysis concerning opioid efficacy in the setting. Buckle up. It's going to be a rough ride. Okay, seatbelt on, Dr. Dinnerstein. What's going on here? So you, you know that the opioid crisis continues to reverberate, and ACSH has been in the lead discussing a lot of the false narrative around the opioid crisis. Very little of it ultimately has to do with um, medically prescribed opioids. There is a, a component of opioid um, problems that relate to diversion of legitimate prescriptions, but that's really not when the, been the main emphasis. So the anti-opioid forces have gotten uh, a set of guidelines published, and they've gone to a very compliant group of people, which are the physicians, and said, you need to follow these guidelines, and to a large extent we have, but this left a lot of people um, that have had a significant amount of pain. And this study looks at um, the problem of substance use disorder, so it encompasses all the various uh, pain relief agents that can be used by people with cancer to see uh, what's going on. If they're not using... Um, prescription medications or over-the-counter analgesics, what actually they're using. And they found, um, <coughs> excuse me, that about four out of 100 patients, about 4% of individuals uh, that were cancer survivors, and that, by the way, is an increasingly large group as we get to be more sophisticated in our diagnosis and treatment of cancer, um, have some form of a substance use disorder and a substance use disorder is a <clears throat> use of one of these medications in a way that uh, interferes with your um, your work or your family life or other aspects of your your day-to-day -day care it doesn't necessarily um, represent uh, a physical addiction as much as a behavioral uh, description. And they looked across <clears throat> a wide range of cancers 
and lo and behold that they found that the biggest substance of abuse was alcohol, not opioids. And there's any number of reasons why that was. In fact, with the exception of three particular cancers, alcohol was far and away the substance that was most abused. So that the, the argument that uh, we should restrict our opioid use, especially in patients with chronic pain due to cancer, because they'll become addicted, uh, is definitely contraindicated by what's actually going on in the community. The three diseases where uh, opioids had a greater use than uh, alcohol were people with head and neck cancer, people with um, liver and pancreas, gallbladder cancer, or people uh, with rectal cancer. Now, people with head and neck cancer, uh, alcoholism is a well-known risk factor for the development of head and neck cancer. And one of the flaws with the study was it didn't look at um, their substance use before their diagnosis, only subsequent to the diagnosis. So it's hard to abstract out how many of those people um, were drinking or not drinking to begin with. People with liver cancer, um, alcohol is a toxin to the liver. So people with that particular type of cancer or pancreatic cancer are going to not be drinking under any circumstances because it's going to make their, their cancer trajectory worse. I, I have no idea why the, the group with rectal cancer um, has chosen cocaine over the other choices, but that's what it is. Um, in any case, what I, what I found particularly interesting was that when you looked at the data, alcohol was the number one substance used. But when you looked at the reporting on this article, it always speaks to opioids first. And alcohol rarely gets mentioned. And that's the, the corruption uh, in the tale. Despite the fact that these are the findings of the researchers, the researchers felt that they got better traction by talking about opioids rather than alcohol. And, and that's problematic because that's picked up by uh, the media who just report things out, maybe with a, a nice quote by somebody. And it continues what's really a false narrative about um, how effective opioids can be in, under the proper circumstances. Yeah, real quick, before we move on, just to illustrate just how far this hysteria has gone with opioids. I had another physician, an ER physician, tell me recently that she was asked to write an addiction consult for a woman with uh, metastatic breast cancer because she came into the ER having overdosed on Percocet. And uh, I, I don't know the details, but it had something to do with she, she was in very severe pain and didn't know how to properly take, take the drugs that she had been prescribed. But instead of helping her figure out the dosing and, you know, here's how you take it and all that stuff, the response uh, was, well, let's, let's get this physician uh, to do an addiction consult on this woman. <laughs> and of Not course, she's like, she's like, she's got terminal cancer. She doesn't need an addiction consult. She needs your help with pain management, you know? So like, that's, that's the level of craziness that we're at. It's that people are on the verge of death are like, no, 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 you know, be responsible with your opioids. It's just. Right. Well, and Josh has talked about that. They have a, a, an expert out of the university of Washington that said, you know, very clearly that you have to be careful of using opioids in people uh, that are in hospice with end of life care. Now, part of the problem there is of course, the fact that we, 
we are very bad at predicting when you're going to die, except we're very good in the last two weeks. We can usually identify people for two weeks, but any further out than that, it gets to be a, a coin flip. So there are people that we say are, are in the last three months of life that live six months, 12 months. Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter is a, a perfect example of somebody that was in hospice for, what, nearly a year um, before anything went on. Um, and But to... To be concerned that these people are, are are addicted is is just cruel and unusual punishment. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, I guess the key thing that stuck out from your uh, review of this meta analysis is that the press release seems to. I guess it doesn't imply, but it says it. There's probably evidence that opioids don't work better than placebo in many cases. But when you read the report itself, um, I don't know if it's the exact opposite, but it's pretty. Cl- <laughs> it's pretty close. Right. Because that's not what the data showed. So talk about that. Well, again, it's just that for a variety of reasons, um, the public relations around science articles um, likes to conform to uh, a particular narrative because it it gets a better play, if nothing else, in the media. And the, and the narrative is that opioids are, are bad, and they're responsible for many, many problems. But um, as this paper has shown, um, opioids are not the substance of abuse choice by nearly everybody. Um, and that other studies have looked at this overall and found that opioids are actually very effective. But like any medicine, they have their problems and they need to be um, prescribed and managed in a, in a particular way. Um, as an aside, because I was just writing something that's coming out in the next week or so, HHS is busy trying to reschedule uh, marijuana from a Schedule One drug, along with heroin and LSD, to a Schedule Three drug, which would be with tramadol, which is a um, far less addictive uh, medication. And what I found interesting in that is that when they do their report, they usually restrict themselves to comparing um, the change in classification to drugs in the class. But in this particular instance, they did a comparison between uh, marijuana and heroin and fentanyl, but also marijuana and alcohol. And once again, if you look across the broad spectrum of things, alcohol is a drug that has greater medical consequences and causes more social impairment and loss than, than marijuana. But it's, we treat it as a very different drug. And, you know, as I, I ended uh, one of the pieces by saying um, the 18th Amendment, which brought prohibition, is the only amendment that we've repealed <laughs> in 200-plus years. So there's something going on there. You know, this may be a topic to get in depth in on another day, but I've had another physician point out that, you know, the, while this whole opioid crisis or fentanyl crisis, whatever you want to call it, is, is going on, you, you know, people can't get the medicine that they should be prescribed or that they have been prescribed and they've been tapered off it too quickly. Um, you have this whole harm reduction movement making it easier and easier for people to use hard drugs like heroin recreationally out on the street, right? So the emphasis is on, we'll go to this safe drug room. We've got clean needles. 
there's a nurse practitioner, there's a doctor here. So if something goes wrong, you know, we've got you covered. So it's this, and obviously these are different interest groups that are competing for public dollars and for control of the, of the legislatures in these different states. But it's just fascinating to me that there's this hysteria over opioids prescribed by physicians. Whereas, you know, if you want to go into San Francisco and uh, right, chase chase the magic dragon or whatever whatever the euphemism is, the, the, it's okay, right? They'll make sure you do it without killing yourself. I, uh, do you have any yes, thoughts on it, that? I guess is what I'm getting at. Well, uh, no, I, I hear you. I think that it's interesting that they they targeted probably the most compliant of all groups, which are the physicians, um, and we are sometimes more compliant than we should be. Uh, the problem with pain management began back in the 80s when we were told that pain was the fifth vital sign and that we needed to prescribe more pain relief for our patients. And we all moved in lockstep and started prescribing more pain relief for them, which was where uh, the opening was for Purdue Pharma to come in. And then as the pendulum continued to swing, we were then told opioids are bad, stop prescribing them. And we are, the literature is full of articles describing how uh, physicians have been able to remove opioids uh, from most of our treatment plans. And in some cases, that may be a very valid uh, choice because uh, the use of opioids in pain relief um, is something that has just been passed down from generation to generation, and we haven't necessarily gone back to take a look at it. That having been said, I would tell you, having had three major operations over the course of two years, um, I'm still waiting to get a prescription for something stronger than Tylenol. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's wild. Um, and so, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. Uh, well, maybe in closing here, you could say something briefly about the, the corruption aspect of this, uh, or if, if you want to, but, but one of the co-authors of this meta-analysis is Jane Ballantyne, who is a, uh, an expert consultant for litigation against opioid companies. And she's, um, the, or a vice president of prop, the, um, physicians yes. for responsible opioid prescribing, which is, a, a hilarious name for a group that is basically a prohibitionist group for opioids. So, you know, it, I don't know. There's lots to talk about, but what are your thoughts as we wrap up here? Right. You know, I think that, you know, there is this problem with expressing the fact that there's a bias uh, in our studies. Um, there's a problem with a bias in how those studies are reported. Jane Ballantyne reports that she was a uh, in the leadership at PROP. Well, being the vice president is, is different than being in leadership, to my, to my way of thinking about it. And then when she says she's done uh, legal work for this company or that company, wouldn't it be nice to know that she hasn't spoken on behalf of the defense, but she speaks only on behalf of the plaintiffs? because that starts to give you a little better sense of uh, how they connect the dots in their story. And, and journalists, um, and I'm going to paint with a, a broad brush, um, 
have not done their due diligence either in terms of actually reading the study that's there and coming to their own conclusions before sitting down and grabbing a, a quote that they can get uh, from the authors. And part of that has to do with how they're educated. Part of it has to do with, I'm sure, um, timelines. It's, it's, it takes more than an hour to digest uh, an article and, and then spend three minutes writing it up and getting it out on social media so you can beat out one of your other colleagues. And while we have uh, journalistic ways of getting the material in advance, it still takes more time, I think, than most journalists are willing to spend. Yep. And uh, as the Los Angeles Times is finding out this week, uh, there are real consequences to, <laughs> to bad coverage because people stop reading you, advertisers stop advertising, you know? So I don't want, I don't want to celebrate people uh, not having income, but at the same time, you know, you reap what you sow. But uh, <laughs> let's, let's leave it there. Go read Chuck's article. Uh, again, the title, very uh, provocatively for Dr. Dinnerstein, is Opioids, Cancer, Pain, and Maybe a Side Order of Corruption. It's on our websites. It's acsh.org. We're on uh, social media, Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it. It's at acshorg. I'm at Cam J, uh, Cam J English. That's right. I remember my own handle. And uh, if you want to get a hold of Chuck, just shoot the organization an email, and uh, he'll get back to you if you ask a thoughtful question. Chuck likes to correspond. So with that, we will see you next time.